today from the Global Lane. Only days old, Israel's new government faces a fiery furnace. Can it survive? What happens when 4,000 Hamas rockets start falling on Israel? High stakes Geneva summit aftermath. Will Putin alter his behavior? Moscow and Putin are fundamentally opposed to U.S. interests, and it's about power. Moving up the election, state legislators help Governor Newsom overcome recall. The Democratic legislators here in California are trying to pull a fast one on the people. As Canada's COVID risk plummets, a Baptist pastor is arrested again. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. With Bibi Netanyahu out and Naftali Bennett in as prime minister, what challenges may lie ahead for the new Israeli government? Bennett leads a coalition of political parties with divergent views, including the Islamist Arab party, Ra'am. Netanyahu has pledged to bring the new government down. Will he succeed or might it collapse on its own? Well, here to share some insights is the former mayor of Shiloh, David Rubin. Mr. Rubin is author of the new book, Confronting Radicals, What America Can Learn from Israel. David, it's good to talk with you again, and I, I want to discuss your new book, but first it seems all these divergent groups were united in ousting Bibi Netanyahu, but how long will Bennett be able to keep a government coalition like this one together? Well, I, I would say that it, it will be longer than people expect. And the, the reason for that is that even though everyone is saying, well, the only glue holding together this government is, is anti-Bibi, anti-Netanyahu, and, and that once Netanyahu is out, so there's nothing to hold them together. Well, the only thing that can hold them together is that they know that Netanyahu is still around. He's still the head of the opposition, and he's still going to be fighting uh, quite strongly to bring down this government. And Israelis, and, David, Israelis seem to be quite divided over politics. But when there's danger, a threat like the recent 4,000 rockets launched by Hamas against them, uh, your society comes together. So what lies ahead for Israel? More danger from Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah on Israel's northern border or what? Well, I don't know if you realize it, but what you just pointed out with those two questions, they're very closely linked. There is nothing that is more likely to bring down the Bennett-Lapid government than rocket attacks on Israel. If there is another barrage of 4,000 rocket attacks on Israel, then the government will fall. Why do I say that? Because you have Bennett, who's, who's a, a right-leaning candidate. In fact, the, the name of his party is Yamina, uh, which 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 means to the right, yeah, right, and and he has in his coalition forty one out of sixty one members who are who are leftists or who are members of the the Arab party, and that Arab party is a pro Hamas party. It's an Islamic, uh, vehemently Islamic party, and they support Hamas. They support terrorism. So what happens when 4,000 Hamas rockets start falling on Israel? Uh, the, Bennett will want to respond strongly. The Ram party, the, that Arab party, uh, will be 
very, very angry and will be under tremendous pressure uh, to resign from the government. Once they resign from the government, there is no government. So, David, in your opinion, did those rockets come from Gaza because Hamas was trying to influence post-election politics in Israel, or was no, it because of a no. perceived lack of support for Israel on the part of the U.S.? Well, it was, it's a combination of factors. Uh, first of all, let me say this. Hamas doesn't base its, its um, rocket attacks on Israeli politics. Uh, they did it now because they were getting messages from Washington that it's okay to launch terrorist attacks. True. Joe Biden didn't get on the phone to the Hamas leaders and say, launch terrorist attacks. But Joe Biden restored hundreds of millions of dollars that had been cut off by President Trump from the Palestinians because they were paying terrorists every single month. They were paying salaries to terrorists every single month. And, you know, as a terror victim myself, and, you know, I, I was wounded in a terrorist attack along with my three-year-old son who was shot in the head. As terror victims, we know every single month those terrorists were getting salaries. Trump cut that off. Biden restored it unconditionally. And when you restore hundreds of millions of dollars unconditionally, then that tells the message, that sends a very clear message, a green light to do whatever they want. And Hamas did whatever they want, 4,000 rocket attacks. Now, if the rocket attacks are resumed, this government will fall. Uh, however, I don't think that they're going to resume the rocket attacks so fast because uh, they, they, they're unable to right now. Their, their stock, stockpile has been depleted somewhat. And, and they agreed to this ceasefire. They wanted this ceasefire. They, they asked for this ceasefire because uh, they need to re replenish their supplies and they need to restock. In your new book, you talk about what Americans can learn from Israel. What's the biggest Correct. lesson for us to learn? All right. First of all, in confronting radicals, what America can learn from Israel, I talk about how it's important to learn from Israel's successes, but also mistakes. Okay, we're an ancient nation. Okay, we've been through slavery, persecution, mass slaughter, uh, but also a lot of success, including the return to our ancient country 2,000 years after our exile, and all according to prophecy, by the way. Uh, but but that, that did happen, and, and it's very real, and there's a lot to learn from us, from our successes and from our mistakes. So, uh, so it's important to understand this central lesson that keys into what we've been speaking about, which is that you do not appease terrorists. You don't appease terrorists by agreeing to a ceasefire uh, when, you're, when you are on the offensive. You don't appease terrorists when they're trying to bring down your country. And this applies to America as well. And the assaults from the radical left that we've been seeing over the past couple of years in America. So thousands of years of lessons from Israel. The book is Confronting Radicals, What America Can Learn from Israel. David Rubin, thanks for sharing your insights. We appreciate you. Thank you, Gary. Beyond the Biden-Putin summit media hype.
With the historic meeting between the two presidents now over, what might we expect for the future of U.S.-Russia relations? More hostility, sanctions, or warming ties? Well, here to provide some insights is Brad Bowman. Mr. Bowman is senior director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Brad, it's nice to talk with you again. So the much-hyped Biden-Putin summit is now over. It ended a bit earlier than expected. What do you think was accomplished? You know, it's a, it's a great question. There certainly was a lot of hype, as is often the case with the presidential-level summit, particularly with Russia. Um, you know, it's it it's not uh, clear that a lot was uh, tangibly accomplished. Uh, we might have some ambassadors returning to their posts. We might have some the beginning of some technical consultations on cybersecurity issues. But uh, you know, I think uh, Americans need to avoid this. Uh, this default inclination to believe that we're just one summit or one deal or one handshake away from fundamentally different behavior from Moscow. Moscow and Putin are fundamentally opposed to U.S. interests, and it's about power. Uh, you know, P President George W. Bush thought he could, uh, you know, look uh, look in the man's eyes and deal with them. President Obama famously tried the reset. You know, uh, we got Georgia, we got the Russian occupation of Georgia, we got the Russian invasion, and illegal annexation of Crimea. So I hope that Biden doesn't fall into that same trap. In the end, we have to make sure that we have the power to deter and dissuade Putin. And it all comes down to that after the diplomatic communiques have been sent. What issue was of primary importance to Putin? What was the top priority for Biden? I think Putin's uh, top priority was to be seen meeting with the president of the United States. I mean, you know, in most power metrics, uh, Russia is not the equal of the United States. They are a member of the U.N. Security Council. They do have... Uh, nuclear weapons. They do have a formidable military that is modernizing and expanding for sure, and that is that is a concern. Uh, but you know they have a, uh, an economy roughly one eighth the size of China. Uh, you know th there's a lot of problems there in Russia. So for him to simply appear on the international stage with the president of the United States and appear to be uh, an equal, if you will, in great power terms, is a, is a win for him. Uh, you know, and, and to appear before reporters and engage in the classic Soviet area whataboutism, moral equivalence, you know, that, that, that's pretty much success for him. For Biden, I think he really wanted to go and say, uh, express concerns about some of the most troubling behavior of Moscow, including in the cyber domain, actions related to Ukraine, uh, you know, Arctic space issues, election interference, uh, many of these issues. And the two agreed to return ambassadors to their prospective posts, and I guess that's a positive. But I, I think it was Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov who warned ahead of the summit that uh, Russia really wants the United States to stay out of its domestic affairs. He was referring, I guess, to poisoned and jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, how important is it for the United States to continue to speak out about him and the banning of his organization? I think it's fundamental to who we are as Americans. I, I think, uh, you know, there's often this, this uh, we, we put this divide forward between interests and idealism or interests in principle. I, I think, in, at least in the long term, those are the same thing for the United States. I think who we are demands that we speak out. You know, what you do abroad, uh, how you act, operationalize that is a different question, but we absolutely have to speak out for what's going on with Navalny and, and you know, the poisoning in, in the Britain of, 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 of folks. So th these, it's as fundamental that we speak out. Putin clearly doesn't like that. If you listen to his answers carefully during the press conference, including some really uh, excellent questions from some Western journalists, you know, he does not want 
uh, fair and free elections in Russia. He does not want active political opposition, and he doesn't want protests. And he used classic Soviet area whataboutism to suggest that you know I'm just you know I'm trying to avoid some of the the problems that you've had in the United States. It's really it's really quite cynical on his part, and we should see it as such, in my view. Yeah, Biden didn't call him a killer this time. Uh, the U.S., of course, uh, would like to see the prevention of uh, Russian hacking. You mentioned that. We saw it most recently with the JBS meatpacking hack, also the ransomware attack on the colonial oil and gas pipeline. Russians were involved in those. Putin denies his involvement, but he could have prevented them. So what's the likelihood he'll crack down on hackers against the U.S. in the future? I think uh, the likelihood of that will depend on whether we start to hit back. You know, clearly, America, we're relying on the cyber realm, and our 2018 national defense strategy said that cyber is a domain of warfare. I mean, uh, Americans need to wake up to that fact. It's, you know, we have air, land, sea, space, and cyberspace. And when I say domain of warfare, you say, okay, great, they're going to do cyber attacks in some future conflict. No, 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 no. We're under attack now. I mean, China's used cyber to engage in the largest theft of intellectual property from the United States in human history, getting our technology to build their weapons to kill our soldiers. Russia's engaged in similar activities, trying to sow division and steal technology and these sorts of things. And it's not some future war. It's happening now. We need to do better cyber defenses, which is easier said than done. And we need to start to hit back more effectively. And that's the only thing, in my view, that will ultimately change Putin's behavior on cyber. And this idea that these are just rogue actors in Russia, I mean, give me a break. I mean, can we just call that for what it is? That's ridiculous. They know the, where these people are, and they're either directing them or permitting them to do what they need to do. And as the Biden administration correctly says, that's unacceptable, and we have to raise the costs until he decides that it's not worth it for him to continue that. Brad Bowman, Senior Director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thanks for joining us today, Brad. Thank you. Changing the time frame in hopes of ensuring victory. In California, the Democrat-controlled legislature says the state will pick up the full cost for a special recall election against Governor Gavin Newsom. That decision eliminates a budget committee process that would have caused the vote to be delayed until late October or November. Now, with the state paying the full cost, the election is likely to be held in August or September, and that may help Governor Newsom. Well, joining us is spokesperson for the Gavin Newsom recall effort, Joe Collins. Joe, it's good to talk to you again. So many people would say the California legislature's action to pick up the full $200 million tab is positive because it removes a costly burden from local governments. But I'm sure you view it as a negative. Why? Well, uh you know, just speeding up the whole entire election, uh, the recall election process is, is a burden in itself. I look at it as a negative thing because it makes it seem like the, the Democratic legislators here in California are trying to pull a fast one on the people. Um, we haven't found a candidate yet who can get support from the Democrats and Republicans or raise money in order to continue to push for the, the, the recall election of Gavin Newsom. And what people don't realize, it's not just a recall, it's also electing a new governor. Uh, the governor-appointed Citizen Compensation Commission just voted to give Newsom a $9,000 raise, which increases Newsom's salary to more than $218,000 per year. Now, does that help or hurt his chances of surviving recall? How likely is it that he would refuse to accept it? Uh, I think he will accept it. Um, as far as hurting his recall, I, I have no idea. It just shows that the Democrats like the condition that California is in. I mean, homelessness is at its highest 
Business, businesses are leaving. We have a huge immigration problem. Uh, and these are issues that Gavin Newsom has yet to be able to fix. Gavin Newsom is too busy worrying about social issues when it comes to things like the LGBTQ uh, community, when it comes to things like giving taxpayers dollars to illegal immigrants, when it comes to creating commissions to study um, reparations. These are the issues that he's focused on, not rebuilding California. So if he takes the money, it will give um, people who want to recall Gavin Newsom more ammunition to recall him. But, uh, you know, him accepting a, a raise is not going to hurt his chances of, of being recalled or not. Well, he's got a $76 billion surplus, I guess, coming into the budget and uh, or into the coffers there in the state. And also, I think as things are opening up, he's hoping people will not uh, remember the harsh lockdown. But he received a lot of harsh criticism over his tough COVID lockdown mandates. But he didn't follow his own rules when he ate at that French laundry restaurant without wearing a mask. So now he's trying to win favor with California voters, Joe, by handing out $50 gift cards to people if they get vaccinated. He's establishing a $116 million lottery pool for vaxxed people. And he wants to give $600 checks to middle-class residents. So the timing seems interesting. What do you think of all this? Yeah, it is kind of interesting. It seems like he's trying to buy his way into that governor's seat for a long run. We know Gavin Newsom wants to run for president of the United States, but with the way California is going, I doubt that's going to happen. Hopefully, the people of California wake up and finally start to see that they deserve better, better than what they've gotten from Gavin Newsom, better than what they've gotten for the rest of the Democrats who've been aiding in his running of California. Well, Joe, it seems the recall effort and Republican gubernatorial candidates had some momentum going for a while. Now it's slowed a bit. At this point, it looks like Newsom may pull off an upset victory if the vote uh, comes sooner rather than later. How, how are you going to turn it around? <laughs> it's, it's possible. I think one of the biggest things is finding a candidate that can reach over and get support from Democrats, get support from independents and Republicans, and be able to push the envelope on recalling Gavin Newsom. We have to remind the American people that every time you step out your door and you see homeless people or you see feces or or anything on the streets is because of Gavin Newsom. If you wake up in the morning and, you're, and you can't pay your bills, it's because of Gavin Newsom's. And the handouts are not going to work. It's only a short-term uh, short benefit. As soon as Gavin Newsom is reelected, he's going to go back to business as normal, and that's destroying California. Well, I remember as a child going to San Francisco. It was just beautiful at that time. Uh, of course, that was back in the 60s. But uh, um, more recently, it's like I couldn't, couldn't believe my eyes. Uh, what's going on there with people with needles and living in tents and so forth. Why is that happening, Joe? Well, Gavin Newsom's a, a poor legislator, and, and the rest of the Democrats are, too. I mean, when you have so many restrictions and the cost of living goes up, you have to blame the restrictions and the taxes. Um, you know, then we have to couple that with the mental health issue that we have here in California. And then we have to couple that with uh, people having money but not being able to afford housing. All this contributes to the uh, alarming homeless population that we have in California. And these are issues that has to be fixed. These are issues that the people who are running for office right now for governor should be addressing every single day. Okay, a lot of problems to deal with there in California. Joe Collins, official Gavin Newsom recall campaign spokesman. Thank you, Joe, for joining us. Thank you so much. The Canadian COVID police are at it again. This time, they've made a second arrest of Fairview Baptist Church pastor Tim Stevens in Calgary. Rebel News showed his traumatized children outside their home weeping as police hauled him away. Bye, Daddy. Bye, guys. Daddy. Police 
charged Stevens with violating a court order against holding services. He held one anyway on June 6th, and Canadian media went crazy, reporting, quote, services with upwards of 150 parishioners were held at the church, and physical distancing was not maintained. Some of those in attendance were not wearing face masks. Oh, my. Not another mass spreader event in Canada. Folks, this is government overreach on steroids. Did you know on the day of Pastor Stevens' arrest, public health officials reported only 951 cases of COVID-19 in all of Canada, in a country of 37 million people? That means only 0.0025% of people living there are actually getting COVID-19. Canadian authorities have cracked down on several other churches, despite no scientific evidence showing that church gatherings are dangerously spreading the virus. So why the totalitarian tactics? Like communist China, some Canadian Christians have gone underground. Grace Life Church of Edmonton is now holding services at a secret location. Police arrested church pastor James Coates last spring. When he got out of jail, he found out his church building was closed and fenced off. Coates said, quote, they can take our facility, but we'll just find another one. And that's what Chinese Christians do when authorities shut down their churches. They find another place for gathering. A Canadian Christian friend tells me this. He says it's not persecution against the Canadian church. He suggests the arrested pastors are agitators, extremists. But that's what the communist officials say about unregistered churches and their leaders in China. Pastors like Samuel Lamb. Before his passing, I met with Lam, one of the founders of the modern-day house church movement in China. He told me persecution is good for Christians because the church grows as it scatters. When Grace Life Church moved underground last April, their worship leader rhetorically asked attendees if they ever thought they'd be part of the underground church. This is a seeker-sensitive service. We are being sought. But the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. Folks, in the name of public good, leftist politicians and judges can shut down church localities, but they will never, ever prevent the gospel from advancing in Canada, China, or anywhere else. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News Channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.